Good morning. Got your Bibles? Uh, Turn to Ruth chapter 3. It's the passage we'll be looking at this morning. It's in your pew Bibles uh, in front of you on page 223. If you're new to college church or new to Christianity and you don't have a Bible, um, we'd love to give you one. Uh, They're available at the welcome desk to my left right outside. Uh, You can pick one up or two or three uh, on the way out and give them away. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands. Uh, So Ruth chapter 3, I'll read out all 18 verses of that for us this morning and we'll get started. Starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, that is Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and, he was, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word to us. May he apply it to our hearts as we look at it together. In April of this year, uh, several of the pastors here at College Church, we went to a conference down in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a good time to spend together. Uh, Most of us all rode in the same car, and in an attempt to fill the five hours on that trip, um, one of the guys suggested that we should all share the greatest trial that we had ever been through in our lives. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Nothing like a little light conversation to get things going. 
there were six of us in the car together, and I didn't know who was going first, but I knew for certain that I was going last. Um, how was I supposed to sum up that what I thought was the greatest trial in my life was the entire decade of my 20s? Um, it's an interesting question, uh, perhaps not the best icebreaker, uh, but I wonder how you might answer that question. For some, it's, it's an immediate recall. Uh, perhaps you're even, you feel like you're there now. Uh, for others, you'd have to piece it together because it's not just one event. It's a series of, of trials over time. It's hard to sum it up. As we've been preaching through Ruth this summer, we've, we've been reminded about the Redeemer. And here we are in chapter 3 where the opportunity for redemption is presented to Boaz, the potential Redeemer. But remember, to have a redeemer, you must have a situation or a person or a group of people in need of redemption, a situation that for Naomi and Ruth could be characterized perhaps as the greatest trial of their lives. And it wasn't just one event. It was event after event that in their sum made for a desperate situation, desperate times. Remember, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, had died. Her two sons had died, one of whom was married to Ruth, making them both widows. Naomi's reaction to this was even to change her name to Mara, which means bitter. Upon her return home to Bethlehem, she was empty-handed and even empty-hearted, except for Ruth. Ruth was steadfast and willing to do whatever it took to remain faithful to her mother-in-law including making herself a foreigner by leaving her home of Moab, including committing herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh, including backbreaking work from sunup to sundown, gleaning grain and barley, basically as a beggar. This was Ruth's noble demonstration of her faithfulness to Naomi in the midst of her greatest trial. Then, chance upon chance, we meet Boaz, the man in whose fields Ruth had been working, come to find out he's a close relative in the clan of Elimelech. And under God's provision, if a woman had lost her husband and her family, a male relative could marry her. This would bring provision, protection, security, redemption. Could Boaz be the answer to these prayers? And this brings us to our text today, where we're left with this tension Redemption is on the horizon. The greatest trial of their lives might be coming to an end. It's, it's so close. The solution seems so clear. Will it slip through their fingers? What measures should they take to ensure that it doesn't slip through their fingers? How much do they take matters into their own hands? And where does faith come in? I wonder if these are the same types of questions that you have when you're facing difficulties. Trials in our lives certainly do invite all of these questions and probably many more. And so our goal this morning is to allow this story, this chapter in Ruth, to call us to a fearless posture of waiting and trusting God amid uncertain circumstances. And we'll see that in three different ways. First, we'll be encouraged to follow God's plan, but we want to do so wisely. So first, we'll follow God's plan wisely. Second, we want to trust God's love fearlessly. And third, we want to wait for God's redemption patiently. And so that's our roadmap for this morning. I'll reference it as we go. 
But let's look at verses 1 through 6 as we're encouraged to follow God's plan wisely. Chapter 3 opens with a conversation. In fact, most of the book of Ruth is conversation. And it's between Naomi and Ruth. Ruth is presented with Naomi's plan, as she says, for her rest and security so that it may be well for her. You see that in verse 1. Naomi has, has moved from this desperate bitterness in her own mourning and grief to a, to a deep love and concern for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, which is essentially reciprocating the love and faithfulness that Ruth has already shown to Naomi. Naomi's solution is to find her a husband. And who better to be her husband than Boaz? Not only is he from Naomi's clan, from Elimelech, by all accounts, he actually seems to be an honorable and godly man, which at the time of the judges, which, which is the setting for this uh, book, those, those qualities are hard to come by. So let's make a plan. Now, let me be clear as we get into this so there's no confusion. The book of Ruth is not a step-by-step prescription for how someone should go about finding a spouse, okay? It's also not a license for you who are married to help your friends who are not married find a spouse, okay? Just a public service announcement there. So what is Naomi's plan? At the end of the season of the harvest, all of the, all of the goods would be brought to a place called the threshing floor. On this, on this threshing floor, the grain or barley would be, would be separated so that the fruit of the grain would be released from the chaff. And this is very hard work. The worker, in this case, Boaz, would finish his day's work, eat his evening meal, drink his evening drink, and relax, and perhaps fall asleep on the uh, threshing floor. And he would do so and remain there to protect his harvest. Knowing that this would be Boaz's routine, Naomi concocts a plan for Ruth to go in the middle of the night at the threshing floor to meet him and So she's to clean herself up, to anoint herself. Remember, she would have been working all day as well. And in Naomi's mind, Ruth should come to Boaz in not necessarily a seductive way, as some of the text here indicates, but in an appealing and attractive way. Once Boaz has had his fill fill of um, his meal and drink, he's going to lie down, perhaps go to sleep. And she's to go uncover his feet, wake him up. And he will tell her what to do next. And Ruth's response is remarkable but common throughout this book as she's been saying, all that you say I will do. Now in 2012, some of you will remember Pastor Moody preached on this passage in Ruth chapter 3 where he memorably categorized this plan as clandestine nocturnal dating. This plan kind of begs the question, doesn't it, that is what Naomi's telling Ruth, is this okay? Does God approve of this? Is Naomi being irresponsible, even with perhaps good intentions, taking matters into her own hands in the midst of a desperate situation? Is this a display of faith, or is this hasty matchmaking? Well, there's a, possible, a possibility of great good. There's certainly a possibility of sinful danger. If you know the story, as I suspect many of you do, because we as readers know the end of the story, we can kind of gloss over these verses and somewhat sanitize them from what actually appears on the page. We distance ourselves from, this, from the real-time emotion and tension of the narrative because we as readers can see the big picture. Well, it turned out okay, so this is all right. 
But throughout the story, once it's revealed that Boaz is a relative, a potential kinsman redeemer, Naomi is pushing Ruth closer and closer to Boaz, hoping that Boaz will act on this Jewish custom and redeem Ruth, that is to marry her. Naomi knew that Boaz could redeem her. She's trying to ensure that he will redeem her. He's been generous. He's been kind. Not only could Ruth be redeemed, but she could be redeemed by a man like Boaz. And desperate times call for desperate measures, right? I was so appreciative of Tim Blackman's sermon last week. If you missed it, I commend it to you. Uh, It's available online. He preached from Matthew chapter 1, which you may know is the genealogy of Jesus. He highlighted this not-so-sanctified family tree of the Savior, including Ruth the Moabite, which gave us helpful perspective in our passage today. But he also talked about Rahab, the prostitute, and Tamar, twice widowed, who desperately gave up her body in prostitution, seemingly unconcerned about the immorality and sinfulness of her actions. Is this scene more along those lines? A potential act of sinfulness, or is it an act of desperation clinging to the promise of God? Well, we aren't given commentary on that answer by our storyteller, are we? We're kind of left with attention. We know Naomi's motive is good. She loves Ruth. We know their circumstances are dire, and they are in a situation of distress and vulnerability. We also know that this episode occurs in the time of the judges where the Bible said, People did what was right in their own eyes. And during this time in history, the threshing floor became, became known as a place of depravity. After the workers would finish winnowing for the day, after their meal, when they were merry in their heart, prostitutes would make their way to visit these men under the cover of night. In fact, Hosea 9 describes Israel's own forsaking of God as playing the whore and loving a, po- a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. And so with this in mind, perhaps our Christian sensibilities are offended because we know the end of the story. This, this can't be. Could Naomi be sending Ruth down this path just like Tamar to uncover his feet, which is actually not innuendo. It simply means to wake him up. But she was to lie down and wait for him to tell you what to do to vulnerably put herself in the hands of a man in a position of temptation. While in desperate circumstances, we must certainly act within our human responsibility, just as Naomi does. But when it comes to God's plan, we must act wisely, trusting our lives to God, even when God appears to be hidden. You may have noticed that God doesn't speak in the book of Ruth. He's certainly spoken about And sometimes we might wonder what God would say to us amidst difficult circumstances. You can be sure that God has spoken to us through the entirety of Scripture. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've made some unwise choices. You've had conflicted motives with regards to your own situation. I want you to know that this passage this morning teaches us that you are not beyond redemption. That there is no circumstance that you will ever face or are currently in that, w- that is outside the possibility of the redemption of God. Even when we cannot see God's hand, we must trust his heart. And like Ruth says to Naomi, we say to our Heavenly Father, 
all that you say, I will do. And so we must follow God's plan, but we must do so wisely. And this brings us to verses 6 through 13, where Ruth goes to Boaz in this clandestine nocturnal meeting at midnight after uncovering his feet to wake him up. And he says, or the narrator says, behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he says, who are you? Perhaps because of her cloak and that it was dark, her identity was concealed. He certainly knew Ruth. But she responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And I suppose after getting his wits about him, realizing what's happening, Boaz responds with a blessing. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You, you have made this kindness greater than the first, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Friends, not only must we follow God's plan wisely, but we must trust God's love fearlessly, fearlessly. Ruth vulnerably puts herself at the mercy of Boaz. She declares herself as his servant, which she is. She basically works for him, but she also makes a surprising request of him. This request to spread your wings over me is, is a break from Naomi's script for her, calling on Boaz as a kinsman redeemer to marry her. This is, this is not innuendo. It's essentially a marriage proposal that echoes the descriptions that even God has in covering and spreading his wings over his own people. It's a risky request by Ruth for many reasons. You'll remember that she's a Moabite, although she doesn't refer to herself here in that way in this passage, but as an outsider to request of Boaz a kinsman redemption is startling. As a woman, she's proposing marriage to a man. As a poor servant, she's putting this request essentially to her rich boss. There are so many reasons on a human level that this is a bold and perhaps even naive request and invitation. But remember, this isn't Ruth sending Boaz one of those kind of subtle Valentine's Day cards that you might have sent in elementary or junior high. You know, do you like me? Check yes, check no, or maybe. This, ex this exchange doesn't exist in some vacuum like that. It exists within the sovereign hesed love of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, hesed is the term used over and over in the Old Testament to describe God's love for his people. R.C. Sproul Jr. says, in fact, there may be no more significant description in the Old Testament of how God relates to his people than this one. It's so rich with meaning, it's even difficult to put into English terms. Some would call it a loyal love. Others would say that this love is eternally faithful. Often it's translated as the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. I like the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones paraphrases it in the Kids Jesus Storybook Bible. Perhaps you've read it. She says, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's the kind of love, it's this kind of love that Boaz recognizes in Ruth for Naomi. In chapter 1, Ruth says to Naomi, For where you will go, I will go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, and there I will be buried. 
Naomi says that Boaz has shown hesed to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness or whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. And now in response to Ruth, the vulnerable, widowed, Moabite refugee, Boaz says in verse 10, you have made this last hesed greater than the first hesed. This kindness is greater than the first Meaning, the kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi thus far has now been surpassed by her willingness to come and join herself to Boaz. And reciprocating this same type of steadfast kindness and love to Ruth, he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. This is a remarkable scene. In a time when this could have turned out for scandal, God is at work drawing two very different people together for his purposes, for their good, under the banner of his chesed love. And when that happens, we have no need to be afraid. God did the same thing for us in Christ under the banner that God so loved the world, he sent his son who was so unlike us to join with us in the flesh of humanity, to become one of us, to redeem us. And all of, of all of the examples of God's hesed love for us that he's shown to us and to his people throughout history, they are surpassed by the steadfast, unbreakable, never giving up love that God displayed for us on the cross. And therefore, we should not fear. Even in the midst of our greatest trials, God will do for us all that he has promised. And we can trust him fearlessly. Now, before we move to our final point, there are a few more points of application to make here. I should highlight the honor that Boaz shows to Ruth. It's, it's not just the love that he shows her. It's the commendable way that he conducts himself in a very tempting and potentially compromising situation. It's become quite commonplace in our culture and as a detriment to our society that almost daily uh, there's a new news story or accusation of sexual abuse where someone in power has assaulted or violated someone else under his or her care. Now let me speak to just the men for a moment. That's not to say that men are the only ones in position like this, but bear with me. In this position, Ruth is as helpless as they come, okay? She's a widow, a foreign refugee, a servant. She's poor. She's worthy, which in many cases makes her desirable. And in this case, just, making, uh, just being a woman makes her vulnerable, as Boaz has already sought her protection from other men. She's been told to follow Boaz's instruction in the middle of the night, in a place culturally known for its depravity. And Boaz neither shames her, nor does he take advantage of her. And this is commendable. He could have shamed her. He could have legalistically thrown the law in her face. What are you doing here? Don't you know what people will say? How dare you? He could have taken advantage of her. No one in town would have faulted him. 
for that very night, there were probably many other people doing the same thing. Probably no one would have known. Instead, he recognizes God's workmanship and fingerprint in her life and her character, and he loves her, he protects her, and because someone was watching, God was there. Men, there is never, ever a reason for you to ever shame or take advantage of a woman or anyone else. I've met with men who use marriage as their license to act in pitiful and deplorable ways toward their wives. I've met men who twist scripture to suit their needs or to use the excuse that I'm just a man to justify the same actions or worse. And in so doing, you perpetuate the same godless culture that breeds misogyny, pornography, human trafficking, and abuse. And you might be a man biologically, but we have a lot to learn about what it means to be a godly, biblical man. And if that's you this morning, you need to humbly repent before your sovereign God today, right now, and beg God to work in your life his steadfast love that you might begin the hard and difficult road of reconciliation with those who you've hurt before it's too late. It's amazing to be able to say this, but because of God's said steadfast love for you, you don't have to be afraid. It will be painful. There will likely be consequences. But for the sake of your own soul, I can't beg you any more than to throw yourself at the mercy of the cross because it is far better than the wrath of the judgment seat. Ladies, if you have been or are in a relationship where you have been abused, taken advantage of, or shamed, let me say first that I'm sorry. And if you have felt that the church, perhaps even this church, has been a silent bystander, I'm sorry. There is no excuse. We can and we must do better. The gospel demands it of us. We must raise up women at college church who are like Ruth, fearlessly trusting in God's love and acting according to his chesed as a worthy, strong woman. We must raise up men who are like Boaz, who act honorably, using their influence to perpetuate and reciprocate God's chesed in our homes, in this church, in other churches, and in our community. Starting in September in men's gathering, we'll be going through the book of Titus. Perhaps, men, you've never been shown what it's like to be a godly man. Would you let Scripture and other godly men in the church walk beside you, not to shame you, not to shame you, but to walk with you, to build you up and help begin that road of redemption and reconciliation. You are not alone. And we are to trust God's love fearlessly. 
Well, third, verses 12 through 18, we are to wait for God's redemption patiently. Now comes the major plot twist of the story. While Ruth's desire is for Boaz to declare his intention to redeem her right then and right there, Boaz says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Hold on. Wait, what? That's not what you're supposed to say, Boaz. You're supposed to declare your love for Ruth. Embrace your role as the redeemer and live happily ever after. Nope. Not yet. He follows God's plan for redemption by pointing her to the nearest redeemer in Elimelech's bloodline, which is not Boaz. And this serves as a, as a giant monkey wrench in the romantic tale of Ruth and Boaz, but it is the honorable way. Boaz does not circumvent God's order by redeeming her for himself as much as he would have liked to. He submits himself to the sovereignty of God, and in so doing, he exemplifies the trust in God that he's asking Ruth to have. This might not turn out like either of them would desire, but he's resolved to trust God with the outcome. So Ruth waits until just before the village begins to stir and heads home. Again, Boaz, not wanting to shame her for something that didn't happen, as she returns home, Naomi asks, how did you fare, my daughter? Naturally, she wants to know how her plan turned out. Now, literally, in the Hebrew, this question is, who are you? Or, in what condition are you? These are questions not just of narrative details, but of identity. Are you still Ruth the Moabite? Or are you Ruth, now the redeemed of Boaz? So Ruth explains what happened, shows her the gift of barley that Boaz has given to prove his intentions to seek out a redeemer. And Naomi's response is, is one that captivates us as readers and instructs us in our own circumstances. She says, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles it today. Now, this is a markedly different response than we might expect from the Naomi who, at the beginning of this chapter, was playing the urgent matchmaker. Now, granted, Boaz's commitment was to settle the matter that very day. No one knew how this would turn out. And in committing to seek another redeemer to, under God's providence, Boaz was putting even his own desires on hold, and he was being forced to wait. Ruth herself, at the mercy of Boaz and this other redeemer, which we'll find out in a couple of weeks, told to do not fear. She is having to wait. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, seeking refuge and rest to put this decade of turmoil behind them once and for all is now advocating, let's wait and see how this turns out. It's important to point out that waiting isn't always just about the length of time. As in, I'm not going to wait in that line, or I have to wait two months to find out whether or not I got into that college, or on a more serious note, I have to wait several weeks or months to find out if a treatment worked. In the situation of Ruth and Boaz, the waiting is not about a matter of time, it's about, about a matter of outcome. We can wait all day when we know the outcome, what it'll be, especially if it's to our liking, it's like waiting for the mail to arrive when you know that a package is coming of something you want or, or waiting for Christmas or your birthday. You know it's coming. 
But when you're in a desperate situation and your future is on the line and it's in someone else's hands, minutes can seem like hours, hours like days, days like years. And I'm not trying to over-dramatize this narrative, but let's not underestimate the faith and trust in God that is displayed by Boaz and Ruth just because their timeline's a little bit different than ours might be. Ruth has not been sitting back and relaxing, but she can indeed rest knowing that Boaz is at work on her behalf. In the same way, we are called to wait on God to bring redemption, to bring a resolution to our needs. And in so doing, we can rest knowing that God is always at work. He is not passive. Two of the most given yet hardest commands for us to follow are in this passage. Don't be afraid and wait. I wonder what you're waiting on. What are you waiting for? Does it cause you to fear? I mentioned at the beginning that my 20s were a little rough. You might classify my early 20s as kind of like a passive rebellion against God. But after God got a hold of me and redirected my life back to him, I thought I knew the plan. I was on a trajectory for ministry. What could possibly go wrong? Then monkey wrench after monkey wrench, left turn, right turn, wait. I had to wait and wait and wait some more. I was restless. I was desperate, sometimes afraid. I wanted to get on with it. But in the waiting, I, like many of you, learned to trust God's seemingly hidden hand by learning to know his very visible heart. And that was far more important than whatever the outcome was. Ruth was going to be redeemed, either by Boaz or by the other man. One way or another, there was light at the end of her tunnel. Your roads have likely taken you to places that you didn't expect. Maybe you're here this morning and you didn't expect to be here. Maybe you don't even want to be here. But you're waiting. What is God trying to teach you about himself in your waiting? And are you listening? What are you learning about God and his character as he develops yours? One thing you can know for sure that if you are in Christ, a follower of Jesus, there isn't just a light at the end of the tunnel. You are walking in the light now. And that's not just a pie in the sky saying. It's the foundational reality of your identity. Just as Ruth was able to rest and wait because Boaz was at work on her behalf, he had even promised it with the gift of provision of barley. God is at work for you, not against you. And he's proven it with his gift of provision of Jesus on the cross. And even in the midst of pain, a desperate situation, and waiting, you don't have to be afraid. You can trust him. And so may God teach us to follow his plan wisely, but to trust him without fear and wait for God's redemption patiently. Let's pray about these things together as we come to respond in song. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us alone, that you have provided for all of our needs, most visibly and evidently 
in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, if we ever needed proof that you are not passive, we only need to look at the cross. So Lord, I pray that the cross this morning would be a great encouragement to those who are hurting and waiting. Would you help them to not fear? And Lord, those who are far from you, perhaps confronted even with their own sin this morning, would they see Jesus not just on the cross, but alive, willing to give that same new life through repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each of us, conforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.